Chapter 10 of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 The Upper Defile. Light swaths of mist were still hanging over the wide expanse of soft sand at eight o'clock the next morning, when a slow bullock cart ploughed its way down to the river. The native driver, wrapped in a bath towel, crouched shivering in a heap on the pole between his beasts, and prodded first one broad back and then the other, with cries of hoo hoo, as they lumbered along. In the bullock-cart I sat on a rolled-up mattress with all my worldly impedimentia around me, including a lamp, crockery, a large coolie basket containing potatoes and various other things, and three skinny little live chickens tied by the legs. Their cramped position and lack of plumpness made me feel so unhappy that I stipulated that those intended for the morrow should at least be fed during the day. Trudging after me, ankle-deep in sand, came Chinnaswamy, with a bottle of oil in one hand and an enamel basin, my sole washing-stand crockery, in the other. The little launch Indaw was waiting when I reached the river, and, as I walked up the plank, the serang with his silver chain of office around his neck salaamed humbly. I went forward and found a wee deck space, just enough to hold the deck chair Mr. E. had lent me, close beside the wheel. Then the boy came flying wildly to me, with great anxiety on his countenance. Missy, no cook-pots! Now the deputy commissioner's wife, who had kindly offered to lend me her cooking-pots, had told me she had sent them down the night before, and that they had been placed on board. I told Chenna to look again to make sure there was no mistake, but further search confirmed the fact they were missing. Several days afterwards, when I was returning on the ferry steamer, a soiled bit of paper with my name on it and nothing else was handed to me, and after puzzling over it for long, I solved the mystery, jumping to the correct conclusion that the cooking-pots had been put on the ferry steamer instead of the launch by the coolie who had brought them down. The boy had to hurry back to borrow the pots from the deck bungalow, and I sat meantime and surveyed the cold waste of water while the serang fretted, for we wished to get through the dangers of the defile before nightfall, we should have been off as soon as the mist lifted. In about forty minutes Chinnaswamy returned triumphantly, and immediately afterwards we got under way. The morning was very grey indeed, and the sky covered with clouds. Long, low-lying sandbanks were all the scenery at present available, and I was thankful for my big fur coat. We skirted close by the shore at first, along banks covered with coarse elephant grass, and passed huge half-submerged rafts of logs, mostly with funny little huts in the middle, in which the natives who went down the river lived. Over one, hundreds and hundreds of crows were wheeling and screaming with a horrible persistence, and at last out of the thatch hut rushed a very wild-looking man with a stick and beat at them in impotent fury. I wondered what lay hidden beneath that thatch. Along the shore at intervals were curved bamboos bent down over the water and connected with a kind of triangular arrangement. I knew they were for fishing, but could not understand how they worked. Here and there we passed odd high-prowed boats, whose owners gathered to stare at us. I could always judge from the amount of attention I received 
whether white people were rarities or not, in any particular district. The hills in front were enwrapped in clouds almost to the peaks, which stood out above like sharp detached islands. I asked the boy to inquire of the serang if it might remain grey all day or if the sun always came out, and was assured comfortingly that the sun always came out, an assertion that unfortunately failed of justification. At eleven o'clock I had breakfast. It was the first time I had been at the mercy of the boy's cooking, and I found it admirable. A poached egg, a nice little bit of beef done up with all sorts of savory vegetables, and curried chicken. I could not read or write at all as the hours sped by. Everything was too fascinating and novel. I sat most of the time within a few inches of the man at the wheel, near whom the serang stood. He was continually on the watch, for the sandbanks change and shift with alarming rapidity, and it needs long acquaintance with the river to avoid danger. Sometimes, at the word of command, the wheel was swung almost round at the last minute to avoid a shoal, and sounding went on perpetually in primitive fashion with bamboos. I had plenty of time to admire the dignity of the serang in his blue linen costume and little round cap, his trousers were made on the opposite principle to a costermonger's baggy at the knee and so tight at the ankle the mystery was how he ever got into them though neither he nor any one else of the native crew spoke any english yet oddly enough the words of command about the steering were given in english by twelve o'clock we were fairly in the defile the longest and most beautiful of the three in some ways the scenery reminded me of scotland and it was only the nearer views, when the differences in foliage could be noted, that destroyed the illusion. Great wooded hills rose in all directions, and the feathery trees grew right down to the water's edge, with here and there breaks and little bays of glistening white sand. The channel was extremely tortuous, with headlands projecting into it from both sides and folding softly into one another in perspective. The chief feature in the forest were the masses of young bamboos, which grew like tree-ferns, or gigantic ostrich feathers, with great curling fronds. They were bright yellow in color, so that, every now and again, one had the illusion of a patch of sunlight to break the monotony of the gray day. They covered the hillsides thickly, and seen against the misty, distant blue, and the nearer dark masses of evergreens were very charming. I am told that in the rainy season the place is ablaze with begonias, and when I was there no flowers were to be seen. As we progressed we came upon great masses of limestone rock all over the channel. Sometimes it looked as though they completely barred our course, and in one place we seemed to be running flat up against a precipice of grey crag, only to turn abruptly at right angles at the last minute. These rocks took various shapes, and it was not difficult to imagine recumbent elephants and crouching tigers and grinning human faces among them. The water was so clear and smooth that every line was reflected, and all the rocks were doubled. Yet the current was very swift, for above the defile the river is half a mile wide, while in many places here it was certainly not more than fifty yards, even counting the smaller channels into which it was broken up. Sometimes, when there was no sign at all of human dwellings, even of the roughest sort, I caught a movement behind a stone, and saw a wee brown face watching me with bright eyes, 
or a little brown imp like a monkey would spring across the steep sandy bank and run along keeping level with the launch to see this strange new thing once or twice odd creatures who might have been either men or women with lank black hair flowing wildly skipped and leaped along the rough stones and as i was wearing a man's tweed cap and a big overcoat they must have been as much puzzled by my sex as i was about theirs the dugout canoes were to be seen pretty frequently these boats are really worth a good deal rough-looking as they are for they must all be in one piece and the tree that furnishes forth length and girth enough is a fine one such a tree is valuable and permission has to be obtained before it can be cut down it costs money the hollowing out is also a considerable affair whenever possible these wild people are subjected to a hut tax but very little is yet known of them one has only to read such a book as sir j g scott's burma a handbook to find out how much there is still to learn in one place he says quote, the Hapon are a small community in the hills along the Irrawaddy near and below Sinbo. In speech they might be either Burmese or Shan. They have long been isolated in the hills along the upper defile, which offered no attractions to anybody. They are kind of lees or scum of the neighborhood, and possibly were in the beginning refugees from justice or from tyranny. End quote. I like to think some of these odd, wild, animal-like creatures I saw were upon. I found that the serang was aiming at a small place called Sinbo, but I began to doubt if we should make it, our progress was so slow. I had tea about five. It was still gray, gray all day, the one completely gray day I had in Burma, and this seemed a pity, for, though it was sunny when I returned, the defile is not seen nearly so well coming down besides the launch goes much faster so as to leave less time for impressions therefore my memory of this wonderful bit of scenery will always be as a clear photograph without color at last we were through the defile and coming into a wide stretch of shallow water almost immediately ran into a sandbank with a swish a soft lift and a bump as on a feather pillow we were not the only people in difficulties for away across the wide water i saw a boat of considerable size out of which the native owners had stepped into the water in hope of shoving it along in the midst of such an expanse a veritable sea it was curious to notice that the water did not reach much above their ankles we for our part shoved off backwards and executing a wild semicircular movement made a rush at the channel nearer in shore only to land again with the lift and soft bump with which i was becoming familiar this time it was more difficult to get off but we managed at last and tried again the third time to get through after exciting sounding on both sides we stopped just short of another undesired landing the serang called a council of his subordinates and they all gave their opinions with much freedom and volubility at one and the same time and i was only prevented from adding mine to the number by my inadequate knowledge of the language after another try we negotiated this dangerous place and went merrily for a hundred yards then again we landed plump and square on a bank 
with a thud which made the launch reel. It was a curious situation to be stuck here under a saffron sky, the pale reflection of a sulky sun amid a gray waste of shallow water, away, around, behind, and before. We were stopped for an age this time, and I really thought the serang was going to cry. He looked so despairing. I longed to tell him to cheer up. The line of trees on the further shore was quite black ere we finally crawled over the bar into safety. Then there was more anxiety. Sinbo was some way ahead. Navigation was impossible in the dark, and it was dark, with only the pale crescent of a watery moon to mock us. There was much pole sounding and a very cautious advance, until at length a light appeared, low down on the water, and another considerably further on. This must be Sinbo, I thought, for two lights hereabout are quite sufficient indication of a village. We finally drew into the bank, and the nose of the boat was run up against the mud. Then the boy came to inform me we were going to stop here for the night, and that the further light, the other, had disappeared, probably indicated the launch the deputy commissioner was on, for it was quite likely he was in the neighborhood. I had letters and stores for him, and I thought it was a pity we had not worked up near to him, but I reflected if we could see his light, he could see ours, and it was easier for him to come downstream than for us to go up. So I told Chinnaswamy to get on with his cooking while I cleaned myself up as well as circumstances permitted. It was certainly very, very still, not a sound on any side. The little cabin looked cosy with the lamp on the wooden table, and I enjoyed my dinner. Whilst I was in the middle of it, a dark face appeared at the window, and a black hand thrust a telegram at me. Astonished was I to read my own name thereon. It was a curious chance. Someone had wired me, care of the deputy commissioner, and Mr. E. from his office, being the only man who knew my whereabouts, had wired on to Sinbo. The natives are very clever at tracking out strangers, and one had come down to the riverside and handed it to the only European probably within many miles. Later, when I had finished, the table was moved to one side, the two benches put together, and my bed made ready. I cannot say it was comfortable. It is in the arch of the ribs that it catches you about four o'clock in the morning, when you are lying on something very hard. Moreover, I found the place stuffy, for I felt compelled to close the shutters of the cabin lest Pryor should look in. It was a curious experience, and enough to keep one awake, to feel one was quite alone with natives, and to hear them grunting and making interjections and conversation within a few inches of one's head. There was a good deal of settling down and gargling and mouth-washing, but by nine they were all quiet though during the night I was wakened several times by a grunt or snore so near to my head that I started, till I remembered there was a plank about half an inch thick between us. Next morning there was a dense white mist, but it cleared off, and the effect as it rolled up in what seemed gigantic wisps of fleecy cotton wool was very fine. The other launch from which the light had come had vanished, gone on upstream, it probably belonged to some forest official, and the deputy commissioner was not on board. As I had been asked to give his mail into his own hands, I began to wonder how he was going to fulfill the trust if he should not appear.
So I climbed up the heights to the village of Sinbo to send off a wire asking for instructions. The serang went with me to show me the way. It was one of the quietest little places I ever came across. There were some ruined pagodas, as usual, several men, dressed only in very small loincloths, were sawing wood in a kind of primitive sewing pit, and a few goats and chickens strolled around. But otherwise there is no sign of life. The little huts were thatched untidily with split bamboo, and each was in its own enclosure, with, in most cases, its own papaya tree growing alongside. But there were many trees, and the broad openings between the houses were little trod and green instead of dusty, so it was not an unpleasant place. We found the telegraph office at the far end, in charge of a very slovenly but good-humoured baboo, who not only sent a wire from me to Mr. E., asking what I should do if the deputy commissioner did not appear, but wired on of his own accord to his colleague at Mitchinia to inquire when the D.C. left there and what launch he was on. When he received a reply, he informed me that the deputy commissioner would probably arrive at Sinbo about midday, and added a long explanation in a very babooish English to the effect that he had reckoned it up so, because the deputy commissioner was on a certain launch. If he had been on another one, also named, he would have taken such and such a time. When I arrived at the gist of it, I praised his marvellous gifts of observation and departed. The day turned out gloriously hot, and I came up to the village again later with Chinnaswamy and the camera. The place was more alive this time, and I got some snapshots of children, and a smiling and pleasant woman with whom, through the interpreter, I carried on some sort of conversation. The boy told me that the serang said, if he did not leave at midday, we could not get back to Bamo at all that day, as we would not be through the defile before nightfall, and I presently had to reply to my wire, telling me to leave the mails with the headman of the village, and return when I liked. So I sent two of the crew up with the big box, and gave the order to get up steam. We had cast loose, and were just off, when one of the natives rushed excitedly up to me and pointed to a launch rounding the low sandbank ahead. It was evidently the deputy commissioner. So we waited, and presently a launch considerably bigger than the Endaw came alongside, and two sunburnt men in topees and the delightfully unconventional attire of jungle travel greeted me, and we all made friends at once. My things were transferred to the larger launch, and the deputy commissioner's mail was fetched back from the village, while he and I went up to wire to Bemo to ask if the defile was clear. He told me this was necessary, as two launches may not meet in it. Hearing that it was, we were soon off. A more delightful afternoon I have seldom spent. Here, where a stranger is a comparative rarity, there is an absence of stiffness and formality which delights the heart of a man from England. The worst of it is that it grows to be a habit, and one is inclined, after travelling, to speak easily to most people, only to be met in some cases with a cold rebuff. We had tea early, and ate each other's jam, and told stories, and laughed, as we raced down through the glorious scenery amid the great grey rocks, now all illuminated with the sunlight. 
the two men, the other was a PWD official, pointed out to me much that had escaped my ignorant eye. I saw the great gaudily-colored toucans with their enormous bills flying from tree to tree. I made acquaintance with the diver-birds and noted their long snaky necks, discriminated between the two kinds of kingfishers, one very like our own, the other large and black and white, and had the principle of the bamboo fishing-rods explained to me. The time went all too fast. It was one of those golden afternoons that come but seldom in life. We arrived at Bemo about six, and I resolved to stay the next day, Sunday there, as I had still much to see, to go on by the ferry-boat on Monday. This necessitated going on board on Sunday night, for the boat starts as soon as the mist lifts in the morning. I found that Monsieur Davera, the Frenchman, who has been in charge of the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company's arrangements at Baymo for many years, had courteously left for me at the deck bungalow a huge bouquet of roses and a delightful packet of fragrant mimosa blossoms, like little balls of fluff, wrapped up in a plantain leaf. This very charming form of courtesy is frequently met with in Burma. Next day early, I had a visit from a boxwalla, a clever man from whom I bought a certain amount of silver. The manner of buying adds greatly to the pleasure of the transaction. The silver article is balanced against its weight in rupees, and so much is added to every rupee for workmanship. This man asked eight annas a rupee for Burmese work, and four annas a rupee for Indian work. I found afterwards that this was not extravagant, as a rupee for a rupee is not an uncommon allowance, though it depends on the fineness of the work. We had a pleasant morning's easy bargaining, and I got my silver quite reasonably, for, when by this method he made the article come to twenty-two rupees, I gave him twenty, knowing full well he would not be a loser by anything he accepted. Among his wares were pretty chains of colored stones with a gleam in them. For these he asked eight rupees, which I declared was far too much, and when I had quite finished buying the silver articles, he proudly produced a packet of letters, which he told me all said, Honest Man, and drew from them one much-worn, stating that he was a good sportsman, that he tossed fair, and that if you won, you got his goods at a reasonable rate. A rather qualified statement, and, as I read it, he cried, Toss, men, sob, toss for the chain. I laughed. Toss, five rupees, or eight. All right, my friend, said I, but I do the tossing. Thinking I was very knowing, I took care to select a rupee that had not two heads or two tails, and, spinning it myself, won. So I paid him five rupees for the chain. Then he cried once more, Toss, men, sob, toss for little silver chain, toss one rupee or three. This chain he had previously offered at two rupees, eight annas. I assented, and once more won. So I stopped, and, as I would not toss again, he said, showing all his white teeth in a grin, Mem sahib in luck, Mem sahib done me. I'm quite sure, nevertheless, it's you who have done me said I. The sequel to the tale came later. When I was in Maimyo, a card with the same man's name on it was handed to me. 
I went down to see him and found not him, but his brother. He had the same chains with him, and I asked the price. Three rupees, said he. The same afternoon in Bamo I was in my bedroom, when I heard someone striding about on the veranda in heavy boots, and came out to find a sunburnt, ruddy Frenchman dressed in corduroys. As I had my tea, he told me he had been travelling in China for eighteen months buying musk for one of the largest and best known of the French scent firms. His mules were following him in, and would be there presently. He had collected a hundred and fifty thousand rupees worth of musk in tin boxes. His sense of smell was highly developed. He said he had smelt the bundle of mimosa Monsieur de Vera had given me half across the compound. He was going to Abyssinia next to get civet cat, and when I exclaimed at the idea of that being a perfume, he told me that, though it is not beautiful in itself, it brings out the perfume of all other scents. Of all ingredients, however, ambergris, that strange product or secretion of whales, is the most expensive, literally worth its weight in gold. It has of itself only a very faint odor, but gives to perfumes that golden color so much esteemed, and the slight oiliness considered essential. Monsieur was very talkative, and when I heard he was putting up at the Dak bungalow that night, I was not sorry I myself was going on board. Soon after there arrived his pony and convoy of mules, jingling into the compound, in charge of their strange wild-looking drivers, men of the Masos tribe from the Yunnan Valley. Though the light was darkening, I took what photos I could as they unloaded the mules, who immediately rolled delightedly in the dust to ease their sore and weary backs. End of chapter 10